and welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Double Down with Breslow, where we cover everything involved in the business of sports betting. And speaking of business, who better to bring on than a venture capitalist in the field of sports betting? We have a great guest for us today, Lloyd Danzig, who's the managing partner at Sharp Alpha Advisors, a venture capital group focused on the business of sports betting. Lloyd, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great to be here. I appreciate it. Did I get the introduction correct? Nailed it. <laughs> so first, let's start with uh, not your name. I already covered that and why Lloyd is spelled with two L's. Uh, but let's talk about the name of the, 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 the venture capital group that you guys, Sharp Alpha Advisors. What is Sharp Alpha? Where, where does that come from? Uh, so originally, uh, I don't think a lot of people know this, actually. Uh, prior to starting a venture fund, we were briefly considering uh, an algorithmic hedge fund that would trade sports like the way traditional hedge funds trade stocks and other securities and would focus on uh, you know, making wagers instead of purchasing traditional securities. And there are many other groups, especially now that do this. But in 2018, uh, it was certainly a much less popular business model in the U.S., uh, in the world of finance, alpha is the term for the excess return that you generate as an investor above a particular benchmark or above what you could generate in a risk-free manner. Uh, and sharp is the term in sports betting and gambling in general that that refers to the smarter, more educated, you know, more information-prone type of investments. And so, in theory, uh, the sharp alpha should be the excess return generated by smart investors whether that is deploying investment capital as a sports wager uh, or investing in businesses in the space. So uh, that was the genesis of the name is, is that we are the ones creating the sharp alpha uh, for our investors. I love it. Explain to me again, you're saying that business that you guys originally had planned to do, I didn't quite understand what that was. And you said now that there's others doing it. Yeah, so very briefly, we we contemplated uh, and at the time that we created the entity named Sharp Alpha Advisors, uh, we contemplated raising capital from investors in almost a mutual fund structure. In a traditional mutual fund, you raise money from investors and you buy and sell different stocks. And each of your investors have their uh, positions rise and fall according to the success of your trading strategy. What has been the case overseas for many years and increasingly in the US now is that you can use that same structure, but instead of investing in stocks or bonds, you can invest in underdog money line parlays or you know whatever trading strategy you might have to take the money that your investors have given you, place sports bets with that money, and hopefully be able to return to your investors more money than you started with. Uh, and so although it's not, I, I suppose, uh, the type of business model that you hear about on CNBC frequently... Uh, there are a number of groups, both in the U.S. and abroad, that run these, uh, you might call them sports trading hedge funds, where you raise money from outside investors, you have a particular strategy through which you decide which bets have attractive expected value, you make those bets with the capital your investors have given you, and then hopefully you have a lot more capital than that to return to them just as they would receive had you had a more traditional mutual fund. So it's super interesting. So, well, that's similar. You hear about syndicates sure. in Vegas, right? Isn't that essentially what you're talking about is a syndicate? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and in some cases, those 
terms may be referred to interchangeably. Conventionally, in a syndicate, the investors are also participants in the group who are involved in laying bets down and, and getting bets down. Although you are right that some syndicates are structured such that many different entities pool money together and only a few of the entities that for, that function sort of like a general partner of a firm are the ones deciding on which bets are placed. Uh, and so certainly there are situations in which syndicate or fund could be used uh, perhaps interchangeably here, but there are others where there are, I think, some important and, and noteworthy nuances that slightly differentiate a traditional syndicate from a proper SEC regulated Reg D private placement fund. And is there one that you can identify that exists in the U.S. right now that's pretty big? Uh, not that I'll call out here publicly, most likely, uh, but there are there are a few. And perhaps what I can you know, mention, because this is certainly a matter of public record, uh, the most sophisticated quantitative investment firms in the world, uh, perhaps Susquehanna Investment Group being chief among them, uh, have long run sports trading desks or firms that invest investor capital in sports betting strategies. Uh, Susquehanna, of course, is based in the U.S. with their headquarters in Philadelphia, but they have been running their uh, sports trading fund business off of Betfair out of a Dublin subsidiary uh, called N Nelly Analytics for quite some time now. Uh, so there are some complexities and there are some U.S.-based firms that uh, leverage European and U.K.-based subsidiaries uh, to execute their trades, but increasingly as sports betting exchanges are getting more popular in the U.S., uh, there is an increase of that liquidity that is being absorbed not only by U.S. general partners, but uh, acting as market makers on U.S. exchanges as well. And to be clear, the, the, these groups are taking people's money and betting them on sporting events. They're, they're not investing in sports betting companies like what you guys are doing. They, they, they're, they're placing bets with it. Uh, correct. A syndicate or a sports trading hedge fund or a sports market making fund, all of which, again, are sometimes terms that are used interchangeably. And perhaps more importantly, and to your initial question, uh, one of the things we thought about doing five or six years ago at this point was exactly that. Taking money from investors, investing that in sports bets themselves and returning capital to investors based on the success of those bets. Uh, that ended up being a short-lived business plan uh, for reasons I'm happy to go into. But at this point, and for the last five years now, we have been doing the latter, uh, which is investing into sports betting technology and media companies. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, I'll take that as a cue to to, to move on to that, even though I am really fascinated <laughs> about these groups. Uh, and, and what's funny is, I mean, in California, sports betting is not permitted, but theoretically, there would be nothing wrong with me investing in a company like that who's doing sports betting in New Jersey, right? Absolutely. Uh, one of the specific stipulations uh, that regulators we spoke with said would have to be in place is that we could not notify our investors, you in this case, of the bets that the fund was placing until after the games had been completed, because they did not want people like yourself investing as a proxy for betting on sports they were okay with the idea that you would generate returns based on the success of a sports betting strategy, but they didn't want you in California to be able to circumvent 
sports betting laws, invest in our fund, and then get a readout of, hey, here's the three games that you effectively have money on tonight. So there were some nuances there. But uh, uh, yes, in theory, you as a California resident should be able to make a passive investment in an entity of the like that I'm describing. All right. Not interested in investing anymore. You just talked me out of that investment. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't sound like too much fun. Um, So give us some highlights of what you guys have invested in, in in the sports betting arena. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I love all my children equally, of course, but to choose a few favorites, perhaps. Uh, If you or or your listeners don't follow Friday Beers on Instagram, I highly recommend it. They're hilarious. We're big investors in their parent company, Almost Friday Media, uh, which is a company sort of similar to Barstool Sports, but more elevated and more inclusive, uh, which, among other things, causes the ceiling for the exit size to to be much greater. They have a huge partnership uh, with MGM that mimics the Penn Barstool relationship, and they do a lot in the sports gaming and entertainment arena. We did that deal with Mark Cuban uh, and Endeavor, the owner of uh, WWE and and UFC. So some really fantastic firepower behind that company, and their content is just phenomenal. Uh, Another company we love and and have now participated across several rounds in uh, is a company called Kiro, K-E-R-O, Kiro Gaming. They are a white label micro betting provider. Uh, If you spend time in the mobile apps of professional sports teams and leagues and have ever found yourself predicting who will make the next foul shot or whether the next pitch will be a ball or a strike, that most likely was powered by Kiro. And they also power similar experiences for real money sports book operators. There are several micro betting pricing companies out there, but what makes Kiro different and the dimension across which they win compared to other competitors is, is that they are really experts in curation and recommendation. At any given moment, there is a really large menu of potential micro bets that a user could make at any given point in a game. But what Kiro does through a process known as reinforcement learning with human feedback, which is how uh, ChatGPT was trained, they surface to the user only the most salient, contextually relevant micro-market, micro-question that a user could be asked at a given moment and simply ask that they swipe left for yes and swipe right for no. Will the New York Rangers kill this power play? Will LeBron make a basket in the next two minutes swipe left for yes swipe right for no so really love what they're doing on on the recommendation and minimization of decision fatigue side uh and then maybe one other i'll, I'll just call hey, out. Hey, l- 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 yeah. let me stop on that one for a second because that one fascinates me so you know micro betting is blowing up people keep hearing about it which is a unique term for basically in-game betting but on things that it's called micro i guess because it's just on the next play it's just on the next event right Right. Micro refers to the duration over which the bet will play out. So next mm-hmm. pitch, next at bat, hard to say whether next inning is just traditional in play or micro betting, but particularly when we're talking about next pitch, next at bat, next field goal, this drive, this play, uh, that is typically what micro betting is referring to. Yeah. Well, maybe you can set me up with an interview with somebody from there and I can really dive deep into that because I, oh, I could spend sure. a full 30 minutes on that. But just my superficial question for, for now is, is it a human that is doing it or is it all AI computerized just for, because it's just moving so fast, you know, next pitch, will they kill the power play, et cetera? Um, is it actually a, a human that's setting the odds or is it all automated? No, I'd say it's uh, about 99% automated. And if I can try to take a really complex topic and oversimplify it here, 
Uh, effectively, uh, what these companies do is they're constantly ingesting uh, the latest data from the game. What was the last pitch? How did the last at bat occur? And so at any given moment, they have a model for the game. Uh, the pitcher on the other team has thrown 45 pitches. It's the third inning. There's been this many batters. All of the data points that define a game at any given moment. And then typically what they do is they algorithmically simulate thousands of games moving forward from the point at which is currently real time. And they look at in what percentage of those simulated games did Aaron Judge hit a home run on the next pitch? Did he get a triple? Did he reach base on error? And using those frequencies or probabilities, you convert into odds at which people can make wagers. So 99% of that, the ingestion of the data, the running the data through a model to produce probabilities, the conversion of probabilities into betting odds, uh, that is all completely automatic. Uh, since we are still in the early days of the industry and betting in particular is, sus is subject to attempts at cheating and exploitation by consumers, you always have one or two, if not more humans in the room that are usually overseeing things and making sure they pass the sniff test and are able to respond in case of an emergency. Uh, but other than that, yeah, the entire data ingestion and odds generation process is, is for the most part completely automated. And what is the house VIG on that typically? Isn't it usually more than a, your typical bet? It is much more for a few reasons. One is that when you're taking pitches, bets on, let's say, will the next pitch be a ball or a strike? That's a much shorter duration than, you know, will a particular NFL team win on Sunday? And so as an operator, as a sports book, you need to know that there's a much higher likelihood than normal that you have lopsided action. You might only get 100 bets in a seven or eight second pitch window across the whole country. Uh, and with a smaller sample size, there's a higher likelihood that all the action is on one side or, or the other. Academically speaking, the VIG is compensation for the fact that operators expose themselves to information asymmetry, that people who are betting have more information at the time when they bet than the sports book did when they put out the odds. And that need is greatly multiplied and exacerbated by these ultra short duration markets where there's not a lot of time to, to recover. And then on the consumer demand side, the reality is that people don't have inherently a good sense of implied probabilities. Uh, you know, what should the likelihood be that Aaron Judge hits a home run or a grand slam on the next pitch? Should that happen one out of every 25 times or one out of every 100 times? It's not entirely intuitive. Uh, and people who are placing micro bets generally are more recreational in nature. They are less price sensitive. You're not really able to line shop when you're micro betting because by the time you open the other app, the pitch will have already taken place. And so for all of those reasons, both from the operator side in terms of what they need to be compensated for and what they can get away with in terms of the prices they can offer consumers, you see a vastly higher hold rate, two to three times the VIG, I would say, on average is what you see in micro betting compared to a traditional total spread or, or money line bet. Yeah, super interesting. That, okay, that's Kiro. Let's hit one more before we have to take a, uh, our, our one break. Uh, one more I'll mention just because it's germane to our previous topic. I, I mentioned market makers and the growth of exchanges in the US. We backed the first betting exchange to launch in the US uh, called Profit. Uh, which has a deal with Caesars, through which it operates currently in New Jersey. Uh, they were the first 
Uh, they are not the only. There are some others that have launched since, many of which we have a great amount of respect for. Uh, but Profit's product, liquidity, and the quality of the market makers that they have onboarded, uh, who are setting the odds, making the markets, providing the liquidity, uh, has been something we've been incredibly impressed with. And it is still early days for betting exchanges in the U.S., although it is not early days for them overseas. Uh, and we're really excited to see Profit expand out of New Jersey into several other uh, jurisdictions and, and to onboard more institutional market makers as it has just announced and released its API uh, that allows both market makers and consumers to trade programmatically, which is how any sophisticated market maker or sports trader uh, will always wish to enter their orders. Okay. So one question about th that, uh, and ex you know, exchange wagering is players betting against each other. So all the website is doing is connecting those to you're not betting against the house, you're betting against the other player, right? Uh, what do you mean by market makers when we talk about this business? So what you described is perhaps the most traditional understanding people have uh, as to what a sports betting exchange is. Uh, but the reality is that the challenge you would face if an exchange truly was only matching you with someone else, another individual customer who wanted the other side of the bet, is that you would have to find, or they, the exchange would have to match you with someone who wants to place the same bet at the same time on the same team, or I suppose the opposite one. But you know there has to be perfect timing. The you have to agree on the odds. And if you're a customer, most sports betters they want instant gratification. They want to log on, place the bet, know that the bet was placed. They don't want to submit an order and get a notification three hours later as to whether it was actually filled or not. And so what? Every successful betting exchange that you have ever heard of has done, certainly Betfair in the UK being the most notable, and then the handful of successful exchanges that there are in the US and elsewhere right now, is that they recognize that in order to provide a viable user experience, people need to be able to log on and bet either sides of a market, the home team or the away team, the under or the over, and get down a decent sized bet. Otherwise, they won't come back. And so the best way to do this, it turns out, is to find large and sophisticated sports bettors or financial institutions that bet on sports and sign agreements with them whereby they will be a market maker, just like you have on the stock exchange. If you go to buy or sell shares of Apple right now, there is someone out there who is standing willing to buy shares at $100 and sell shares at $101. Uh, and that's what they do all day in the New York Stock Exchange incentivizes them for doing so. And they don't care if Apple goes up or down over the long term. They just want to take bets on both sides and make the spread. And so similarly, the majority of the initial liquidity that you see on a betting exchange comes from a market maker who puts up odds both for the away and home team, both for the over and the under, and hopes, just like a sports book, to get roughly equal action on each side and make the risk-free spread that exists in the middle. Uh, and so every betting exchange, you know, pretty much anywhere that has had a moderate round of success, including those in the US, they leverage market makers to ensure that there is a proper amount of liquidity so that customers can get their bets down and do so in a timely fashion. Wow. So it allows just about anybody to be a sports book if they want to go up there and be a sports book on that site, right? And then from the player perspective, What's the advantage to the player versus a regular, you know, uh, um, DraftKings sportsbook? Is, is it lower VIG? So just to confirm on the first point, uh, it's not 
quite just anyone. There is a bit of a licensing process that you have to go through to be able to be a market maker. There are some platforms that exist overseas and some crypto-based platforms where truly anyone can become a bookmaker in that regard. The regulated U.S. exchanges have been a bit slower, but over time, yes, anyone will be able to go on and do what's called laying liquidity uh, rather than backing, which is the term for the traditional type of bet. When you lay a bet, you are saying, I think something will not happen, and here are the odds at which I am willing to accept a wager. Let me see if anyone else will take the other side. Uh, to your second question, why would someone uh, place a bet here from a user experience as opposed to DraftKings? Uh, exchanges cater to a high volume, low margin, price sensitive customer. If you're just betting recreationally and you're trying to hit a 14 leg same game parlay on an NFL Sunday, DraftKings and FanDuel will be your home. That will be the best place for you. But if you're really trying to make money, sports betting, if you're trying to maximize every percentage point of expected value wherever you can, if you are absolutely adamant about getting the best price and the best odds on every bet, and especially if you are a sharp better who has been let, limited or banned by a traditional sports book, exchanges are the place for you. They have a much lower VIG because they don't need to be compensated for information asymmetry. It is riskless to operate an exchange and therefore they require less payment for doing so. And if you are someone who has been banned or limited also, which again, tend to be price sensitive customers, you will find yourself on an exchange. That's where you can get the largest bets down at the best price, the best odds, the highest limits uh, and the lowest big. Super interesting. All right, let's take our break. And then I want to jump on this quote where you think next year will be the best ever for venture capital in sports betting. We'll be back after this break with Lloyd Danzig of Sharps Alpha Advisors. The world's best known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. Hi, it's Lauren the Better, and you're listening to Double Down with Breslow on the Evergreen Podcast Network. And welcome back, everybody, to Double Down with Breslow. We are talking with Lloyd Danzig, the managing partner at Sharp Alpha Advisors, a venture capital group focused on the gaming industry. And uh, a recent quote from him is that he believes that next year, 2024, will actually be the best ever for venture capital investments. Explain that. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, the market has changed a lot uh, in the last few years. 
uh, both in the public and private markets were down significantly from the valuations that we saw at the peak in 2021. Uh, and I speak often to a lot of family offices and uh, pensions and endowments and groups that allocate to venture capital. Uh, and for those that are temporarily pausing, that are maybe not allocating to venture capital right now, I often ask why. I ask family offices, you know, why are you temporarily choosing not to allocate to, to the venture capital asset class? And one of the most common answers in the past 12 months is something like, it's just too hard for us to allocate to venture capital right now. And usually my follow-up question to them is, well, when was it easy? And they usually say 2020 and 2021, which in retrospect were the statistically worst times ever to invest in venture capital. And 2021 will probably be the worst vintage in venture capital history because firms were deploying capital at the top of the market uh, and are not going to be able to realize returns from those investments. And I think it speaks to a wisdom among smart money in the world of venture capital, which has always recognized that when it is easy and fun to be investing in venture capital, that is the worst possible time to be doing it. When it is hard and wrought with friction and stress, that is the best possible time to be doing it. And I think it makes for probably one of the most classic be greedy when others are fearful situations uh, that I have ever come across going into you know 2024, talking about the, the private early stage markets. And to make it more tangible, there are two primary reasons for which I think that 2024 will be one of, if not the best vintages in venture capital history. On the one side, and this is maybe less nuanced and something people are quite aware of, valuations have come down investor friendliness which is not only a measure of valuations but also ability to secure liquidation preferences anti-dilution protection board representation veto rights other types of covenants investor friendliness is moving toward an all-time high it will probably reach an all-time high in early 2024 at the same time the market two or three years ago was incentivizing founders to optimize for growth hype salesmanship, number of press releases, things like that. And now, quite rightfully and healthily, it is forcing founders to optimize for traction, execution, profitability, and things of that nature. And so I would argue that if we look forward to, let's say, Q1 of next year, the average company receiving venture funding will probably have a two or three times greater likelihood of reaching a successful outcome than the average company did in Q1 of 2021, simply because previously founders were oriented toward unsustainable and incorrect metrics uh, and KPIs, often by their investors and their market, whereas now we have companies that are purpose-built uh, for sustainability, durability, efficiency, and things of that nature. And so you push those two things together, and in theory, if you are either the biggest firms in the world, the Andreessen's and the Sequoia's, or if you are a small but specialized firm that is highly respected in a sector with strong secular tailwinds, you should be investing in companies at half the valuation that have two or three times the likelihood of a successful outcome. Uh, and I know when I look at our investors, a lot of them made their money investing after the dot-com crash, after the great financial crisis, and now are shoving all their chips in in a similar fashion. And, and so that is why I expect for the really top tier largest VC firms and for those that are specialized in sectors with strong particular tailwinds, 
the ability to invest at more favorable terms in higher quality companies uh, should make next year one of the best times ever uh, to deploy capital into seed and series A investments. Yeah, I think everything you, you say makes sense. My only question would be interest rates. How, how does high interest rates impact th th this class of companies? So high interest rates in the short term certainly do a few things. One is that they pull money away from the venture capital asset class. Uh, if you can make five to 6% of uh, a year on your money in a liquid security and in a riskless fashion, you know it becomes a lot harder to justify locking your money up in a risky, illiquid asset class like venture capital to generate, you know, a, a what might start to feel like a marginal return. And then in a sort of more academic sense, uh, companies are generally valued based on the net present value of their future expected cash flows. And when interest rates go up, the present value of any stream of future cash flows decreases exponentially. And that's why you're seeing everyone from the public markets down to the early stage have valuations reduced. But other than that, you know, seed investing is investing over a five to 10 year, if not longer time horizon. Uh, and who knows how interest rates will perform over that time. So if you're solving an important problem and delivering a novel, unique solution that is scalable and commercializable, I don't think interest rates represent any sort of existential risk to your company. Uh, they might slightly change for better or for worse the value per share that gets ascribed to your company when it comes time for the IPO based on interest rates and expectations at that time. But for the most part, I'd say that startups are impacted by high interest rates in the form of investors underwriting to lower valuations and capital evacuating the venture capital ecosystem uh, because it can find better risk-adjusted returns in safer and higher interest rate bearing instruments. And now let's bring it to sports betting. If I'm looking to do a startup company in sports betting, what space should I be looking at? I think there are two buckets uh, into which I put companies that are most interesting today. And then maybe I can describe a, a more forward-looking theme. Uh, today, I think the market is all about increasing profitability and also increasing durability and sustainability. So on the former front, increasing profitability, how are sports betting and casino operators looking to increase average revenue per user or the amount of that revenue that then falls down to the bottom line? Uh, and part of the way they are doing it is with more recreational leaning, higher margin products like same game parlays and micro betting, all of which, by the way, are provided by startups in the current market. Uh, yes, DraftKings, FanDuel and Caesars and MGM are the apps on which consumers uh, participate in that type of betting, but none of it from an infrastructure perspective really is provided by the big operators. Uh, Simple Bet provides the micro betting odds feeds for DraftKings, Hard Rock, Bet365, and Caesars. Uh, companies like Angstrom, uh, which Intain just acquired, and Swish Analytics, and Huddle, uh, Deck Prism, they provide a lot of the same game parlay pricing. So that's a great example of something that startups are providing, which drives higher profitability for operators. Other examples include personalization and customization capabilities. If I open a sportsbook app at 7.04 p.m. on a weeknight, you can rest assured I'm betting on the Yankees game that is going to start at 7.05, especially if I'm <laughs> geolocated in New York. 
And so every time I open DraftKings at 7.04 p.m. on the East Coast on a weekday, I should be shown the Yankees odds first, but we are not quite at that point just yet, although we will be soon. Uh, and while some of that is being built in-house, a lot of that comes from third-party software providers. Uh, and so those are two of many. Is, is that a company you guys are involved with? Uh, so the, one of the leading companies that does that is a company called Future Anthem, uh, which we are involved with. They have uh, real money gaming operator clients all over the world, and they provide turnkey personalization and customization capabilities. We're also involved with a company called Sharp Sports that provides an API solution that allows any platform to connect directly to its users' sportsbook accounts. So if you were building a bet tracking app or an app where people can make picks and see how they perform over time, and you wanted those users to be able to log in to DraftKings and FanDuel just once and forever be able to automatically import and auto-sync to all the bets they were placing, you as a company could use the Sharp Sports API to make that happen very quickly. And you can imagine that with that data in hand, Sharp Sports, in theory, can see for a particular user, how much are they betting on DraftKings? How much are they betting on FanDuel? Do they place more parlays on one versus the other? What are the different dynamics across a user's wallet? And so they also have some really interesting use cases that they are able to enable in this personalization and customization bucket. So that's sort of my first bucket of interesting companies thematically right now are either increasing the size of the pie or the profit margins that exist therein. And then I said bucket two was about sustainability and durability. Uh, and there are a number of companies that are building responsible gaming solutions, uh, affordability check solutions, which are now being federally mandated uh, in the UK, better payment rails, better KYC AML infrastructure, and, and things of that nature. And to tie this together, Future Anthem, which I mentioned, not only do they supply operators with the ability to leverage artificial intelligence to customize each user's experience, they also monitor each user's behavior, detect deviations from responsible gaming in real time, and use that to redirect a user toward more safer forms of play. So for example, you could imagine if you recognize algorithmically that someone's starting to chase their losses, they're doubling their bets each time, Maybe instead of sending them a promotion for a free deposit bonus, you send them a promotion that directs them toward a free-to-play game uh, where they can enjoy a cool-off period and not you know, wager any real money for the next 24 hours. So bucket two, I think, is products, platforms, and services that increase the sustainability and durability of the industry. And then I said I would give maybe like a more forward-looking uh, theme that we are, are, are quite interested in continuing to underwrite, which is that... I would say our overarching thesis is about the convergence of everything under the umbrella that I like to refer to as competitive entertainment, which I define as forms of entertainment where winning or outcomes matter. And of course, that's sports betting and casino and lottery, but it's also ticketing, merchandise, collectibles, retail stock trading, retail crypto trading, uh, Peloton races, Peloton races for money. Uh, video games, skill-based games, sweepstakes games, all the things that fall under this umbrella of entertainment rooted in having skin in the game. And what we're already starting to see with companies like Fanatics, for example, is an attempt to integrate and converge all these experiences in one roof. The first exit we had in our portfolio uh, was a DFS company called Betcha that was acquired by Vivid Seats, which is a StubHub competitor. 
and now operates a sports betting business called Vivid Picks. And if you make 10 picks, you get a free ticket to the game. If you buy a ticket to the game, you get a free parlay slip, whatever it is. Uh, you're starting to see a lot more of these efforts toward convergence, building the one-stop shop for all of a competitive entertainment fans, digital needs. And in order for that to actually be possible, there's a lot of technological development and innovation that will have to occur. Uh, and I think something over the longer horizon that we continue to be excited about within and adjacent to sports betting is all of the connective tissue that exists and can be created to really allow for operators to cross-pollinate between these adjacent revenue streams and eventually to connect everything together in, in a singular, cohesive user experience. Mm. Super interesting. We're just about out of time. Just one question that is, is going on in my head. Europe has been so far ahead of us when it comes to sports betting. All the stuff you're talking about is super interesting and fascinating as far as where this industry will go. But because Europe is so far ahead of us, are we seeing a lot of this stuff that happened in Europe or is just America that much more innovative and we're going to far surpass what Europe ever did as far as integrating sports betting into all these other channels? There are many, many dimensions across which it is quite useful to look at the UK, European market, and I would also add Australian market when trying to learn lessons about how things might unfold in the US. Uh, and certainly responsible gaming, for example, is one of those fronts. But I think the question you're asking is, is actually not one of those fronts, and it's for two reasons. One of which you already mentioned, which is that you know, without trying to be an American exceptionalist here or anything like that, and with all respect to all cultures and geographies, of course, there is a type of entrepreneurial motivation and innovative horsepower that exists here in the U.S. that really doesn't exist anywhere else. Uh, and that, I think, is one part of the answer. The other part is that we just have a different sociocultural orientation towards sports betting than they have in Europe, and especially different than they had when their PASPA moment was occurring. The UK Gaming Act of 2005 was the equivalent of PASPA being overturned in 2018 here. Um, and especially at the time, sports betting was very heavily stigmatized. You talk to people in the UK at the time who were professional sports bettors, they'll tell you they'd rather have been caught walking out of a brothel than out of a betting parlor. And I think this is best enshrined in the experience that you can have either on Google Maps or by traveling to London, for example, go to the nicest betting parlor anywhere in the United Kingdom. And it's kind of like a post office. Uh, I was going to say a glorified post office. It's not even glorified. Uh, it is like a post office, a very transactional location that is meant for you to enter, place your bet and leave. It's not a place to hang out. It's not a place to watch the game. You go to a Vegas sports book and you could argue that the actual odds are the least important facet of the entire user experience because it's about having fun. It's a place to see and be seen. It's an entertainment location. It's a social location. And I think that difference between a traditional Las Vegas sports book and a post office like UK betting parlor showcases that we here in the US have an appetite on the consumer side for integrating sports betting into our daily lives and into our social lives and into the media that we consume at a level that other more mature betting markets uh, have never witnessed. And I think if you combine that with the entrepreneurial innovation focused type of horsepower that we have here, that is why you will see in some cases and on some dimensions, new innovations, new user experiences, new business models that could not have worked elsewhere and at a different time, but that have fantastic potential to work here and now.
Yeah, super fascinating and won't necessarily transfer over the pond. So uh, just because we developed it doesn't mean that it's heading that way, because to your point, they're, they're, it seems like they kind of tolerate sports betting as opposed to embracing it. Yeah, I think there are, I will say, there are cases where I do expect innovations that arise out of the U.S. to then proliferate elsewhere. It's almost basic human nature that you don't even know what you want until you see someone else has it. And then you say, oh, I want that. Uh, and so I do think there will be some instances of that, but in other cases, there will not be because of that sociocultural divide that, that you just articulated. Yeah, there. makes sense. Lloyd, you're amazing. I think you gave everybody an awesome update on uh, uh, exactly where sports betting is and where it's going. Lloyd Zant Danzig, managing partner at Sharp Alpha Advisors. Thanks so much for coming on Double Down with Breslo. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Well, hopefully we'll be able to have you on again. You're, you're, you're great. And thank you all for watching and listening to Double Down. We'll be back soon with another episode. Take care, everyone.